Embark on a captivating exploration of Dr. Renee Mitchell's inspiring journey. Rooted in journalism and fueled by a profound commitment to youth empowerment, uncover the transformative power of storytelling as Dr. Mitchell shares her experiences and reflects on key themes of resilience, community engagement, and the impact of embracing change. The episode begins with a glimpse into Dr. Mitchell's childhood in Santa Rosa, California, highlighting the community-oriented values instilled by her father. Transitioning to her adult life in Portland, the narrative explores Dr. Mitchell's recruitment by the Oregonian and her unwavering determination to become a columnist. Insights into the pressures and challenges of this role underscore the importance of staying true to one's voice. I was born in Santa Rosa, California, in Northern California wine country. My parents moved from Wisconsin to Santa Rosa, where the year I was born, there was a big rainstorm and uh, for days and days. And so my father was always such a community-minded person. So there was a, a newspaper article about him helping clean the, the, the neighborhood clean up the, um, the rains, you know, after the rainstorm. And so that was really my upbringing, was always thinking about how can we help community be better. And so... Uh, I learned that from my dad. I am my father's daughter. And so he, uh, in our small town, because we've always lived in places where there were very few black people, uh, he was always doing what he could to help make the neighborhood, which was a, a low-income, uh, racially mixed neighborhood, uh, make it better. He got the first park in that in that area of the city, the Martin Luther King Jr. Park with basketball courts and and picnic tables and and he also got a um, some Head Start programming there for the young people uh, and he just was in charge of the neighborhood association. He was part of the Martin Luther King's Poor People campaign. There were always people coming to our house for food or to for money or just to to get his counsel. So that's how I really grew up. And I guess when, when I think about who I am, it's who has shaped me, uh, what experiences uh, have really defined uh, who I am and, and, and how I approach life and what I feel like my mission is. And it all started there with my father uh, being such a dynamic person that he was and with uh, such a deep, caring heart for community. My father died when I was 11, and so um, I wanted them to, my children, to know their cousins and that kind of thing. So that's how I ended up here, is um, the Oregonian recruited me. I um, knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be a columnist. I, I had been a columnist in Battle Creek, Michigan, where I was the city editor, and then I started a column, and I was told by the editor... Um, because I was hired in the business section of the paper. And I said, uh, we sat at the park in the park blocks. 
And I said, she asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to be a columnist. Uh, I really enjoyed the interaction with the community and that kind of thing. I got to write about what I wanted. And she said, no, not at this newspaper. There's a long line of people in front of you. So what I would like you to do is continue to stay in management and, you know, and, and move up the ranks that way. And uh, I didn't argue, but I, I knew what I wanted. And I just had to bide my time. And at some point, she came to me and said, would you like to be a columnist here at the Oregonian? And so, yeah, and that's that's how all, that all shook out. It was a lot of pressure because I didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere because my thing was, I'm going to tell the truth. And I'm going to tell the truth from my perspective. <laughs> and so I would have fun uh, with what I was doing. I had a sense of humor. I called people out. I wasn't afraid to speak the truth. And so in some ways, I felt ostracized from the community because they were like, who does she think she is? You know, she, she's not even from here. How is she talking about this stuff? And I just, I just trusted my own gut. And because of the way that I grew up, I always knew that I, I had to bet on myself because there weren't a lot of people betting on me. They were more betting against me. So I had to learn how to bet on me. And that's even how I got to become a journalist. I, I, um, I love to write. I have writings from when I was seven or eight years old. Um, and there was one particular story that I wrote about a young girl trying to get on a train and she was late. And so she was sad. And there was dialogue. This is a seven-year... There was dialogue in my story. And there was emotion because I talked about how the little girl was sad because she showed up late. She didn't think she was going to get the train ride. And the conductor said, well, why are you crying? And she said, I, I, I... She stuttered. I, 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 I'm sad because I want to get all the... It's like, wow. Because I love to read. And that's what reading showed me to do is the dialogue. I got to have quotes and I, and I got to have emotion in there. <laughs> but when I think back on it, it was like, it was what shaped me as a, as a writer. It allowed me to show my emotions in ways that I didn't physically show it in embodying emotion. I didn't do that. But when I wrote, it came out, right? And so it was something I was always good at. Uh, and because I was so lonely, um, that I would read books and I would write. And, um, and so that's what really shaped me and got me a, a, a full ride to Florida A&M. Uh, this is a HBCU and to go from predominantly white environments where the most black people I saw lived in my household to a predominantly black environment where I got my first black teacher totally changed me because they saw and empowered and encouraged me in ways that I had never experienced before. And so they, um, they said, you know, you come, you come here and you major in journalism, you get a full ride. And I was like, that's all I needed to know. So it's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful career being able to talk to people and really find out their stories 
And what I learned from being a journalist is most people just want to be heard. They just want to know somebody cares about them. And to take the time when I'm looking at them and asking them questions about what's important to them, that brings them joy, which brings me joy. So um, so I, I loved my job. But at one point, it was just, it was time to low. It was time to go. I was divorced, three kids. And so I wanted them to be around their family uh, because I, I never grew up around my cousins and extended family. It was always just the, the brothers and sisters. The work that I do uh, in the community is all, all focused, well, not all focused, mostly focused on youth. And it's because of my experience as a young person. I was usually the only black kid in my whole classroom, uh, sometimes in the whole school. It was really difficult. Uh, the white teachers allowed young people to bully me. Um, there was one time I was actually beat up by a football player. I was really shy and um, often hungry. And so I felt so unheard. And then when I left the Oregonian and I st I was, as an artist, doing things in the schools, I went into King School and worked with the first graders with their writing. And so I was always trying to get them to think positively about themselves. So I would ask them to say what their name was, but to use a descriptor word that began with the first letter of their first name. So Brave Brian, Smart Susan, that kind of thing. I had a whole list, A to Z, of all different kinds of options. So if they couldn't think of anything, I was going to give them something, right? And so that's what I was doing. I was going around the room and allowing them to do that. And what was happening with the black kids is they couldn't think of anything. And then when I give them something, there was this pattern that was happening where they would drop their head and, and shake their head like this. And I give them another one and they, they, they do the same thing. And it was heartbreaking uh, because it reminded me of who I was at their age, just not even feeling good about myself. So I went home and I wrote a book, um, a, my first children's book, The Awakening of Sharon, uh, a shy and brown supergirl. Sharon is my first name. And so I keep the S to remind me of where I came from. And so I brought it back with the book. And I talked about how courage is within. And uh, and the, the core word of courage is core, which is, is it means it's in your heart. So courage is always in your heart, right? And so I just started doing those things, right? And recognizing when I brought that book back that next day, I had made copies and uh, given them space where the words were on the bottom and then they had this blank space to draw their own pictures. And how that transformed the energy of the classroom was significant to me because they were allowed to tell their own stories, right? And so that is how I got interested in young people. And so uh, eventually I was recruited to teach journalism at Roosevelt High School, the most diverse high school in the state. And um, when I came in, and I, I didn't go to teacher school, but but I knew journalism, right? So I went through the route of uh, a career technical 
path, right, in journalism. When I was when I first started, there were other black teachers, but by my next year, I was the only black teacher. <laughs> you know, which was like, um, okay. But I had a principal who recruited me who just let me do my thing, right? And what I noticed almost immediately in that role was some of the things that these black youth were experiencing were some of the same things I had experienced decades ago. And I'm like, this is still going on? I thought it was just me, right? But realizing it's systemic. And so I just, you know, again, asking myself that question, what am I going to do about it? And so I started, you know, creating space for these young people. We revived the Black Student Union. I started a Black Girl Magic Club. We revived the, the, the assembly, Black History Month assembly. I was taking these kids out in the community where they were doing poetry or singing, um, where I was just really stretching them and realized what kind of an impact it was making. And so in t late 2018, uh, I, I had been also helping youth write scholarships, you know, because um, that was able, why I was able to go to school on a full ride scholarship, right? So I wanted them to have this opportunity. And so at the end of 2018, the Stanford Children Program has a scholarship for $16,000. Now, Roosevelt, being a low-income school, um, did get some scholarships, but it wasn't, the Stanford Children was not a regular one, right? And so there were only four who won this scholarship, and three of them were my students in my Black Girl Magic Club, and all Black girls three black girls at Roosevelt. And I was like, I need to put a flag in the ground because this is significant. I want th these young ladies to be able to share with other youth that yes, even though you've gone through some trauma, you can move past it and you can use that trauma as a way to inspire and empower and encourage other people. That's all I said I, I wanted to do, right? But even that evolved once we started doing that so when we started at late 2018, by January, I had the youth performing at the, the annual MLK event, which is one of the longest running MLK tributes in the country. And so they had never done this before. We practiced in the St. John's Library, but I first realized I had to open up about myself for them to open up, right? And there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of things they had never talked about because it hurt so much. And what I did, because when I went to Florida A&M, I also got into theater. I used my theater skills to kind of weave their stories together. Like you start to tell your story and it, then this is where you end. And then the other person begins and they tell their story and this ends at a cliffhanger. So, you know, that kind of weaving of the story I could tell that they were very nervous. Their voice was cracking. You could see their tears. They were so, so, you know, scared. But what happened as a result of this shaped my entire way that I do this program called I Am More. Um, afterward, we had a table where I had designed some shirts, Black History is American History shirts. And so we were selling them. People flooded the table. They were saying, I wish I was as brave as you at your age. I would have never been able to tell my story like you did. 
I saw myself in your story. You are amazing. They treated them like rock stars. They wanted to give them money. They wanted to take their pictures. This shifted their own capacity about who they were and what kind of influence that they could have on others just from those conversations of people giving them kudos for telling their story. So that was really the development of what I am more and more is an acronym, making ourselves resilient every day. It is a decision. It's nothing I can do. I can give you the opportunities, but this is something you have to take as a young person that you were going to help make your own self resilient and then help other people. And so that's how it began. And so in January, we did this thing at MLK. In July, we were in Philadelphia because one of the things that I've always been good at, I'm looking for opportunities for these kids. And so there's all these conferences, trauma-informed conference, social-emotional learning conference, how to do this with young people. Zero young people are in that conference, right? And I said... I'm bringing young people, and they got excited. They said, we we want them to open for us. Open our conference, 500 people from all over the country. And they did it. And so we were there in Philadelphia, and we got so much support from P, uh, PPS, Portland Public Schools, because they actually paid for our youth to train teachers, classified staff, administrators. We got youth in front of them. Right. And so that was the beginning of I am more. Uh, and it, 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 and it, you know, grew and was shaped because of the things that we were doing. And I was paying attention to the feedback and how, and that's how we just continue to build and build and build. And so when we went to Philadelphia, we also went to New York city and, and DC because some of those kids had never been on a plane before. And I wanted them to have the opportunity to see other Black people in bigger cities. That's number one. Number two, I wanted them to have an experience that they would never forget. Going to the White House, you know, and then going to all of these different places, uh, going to see the Statue of Liberty. You know, all of that was just like, wow. I I wanted their minds to be blown because I wanted them to know that they're worthy of all of these experiences. And so now a lot of them are traveling on their own. You know, they're seeing the world on their own because they know that they're worth it. And, and these are things that I, I wish I would have had access to, whether it was a mentor or just somebody inspiring me and encouraging me that did happen in some ways at FAMU because these were black teachers. And they looked out for me and they made sure I had places to, to, to live and I was eating and that kind of thing. Um, so I wanted for these young people that I was experiencing or encountering the same kind of opportunities, you know, or belief in themselves uh, that I had gotten from my black teachers. So, yeah, this, this I Am War is really about it's it's a dream come true for me um, because I see the impact that it's making on these young people. And that brings me so much joy. And that also heals my inner child. It's 
it's not only having those experiences, but also how those experiences transform the lives of these young people. That is what brings me joy, is by them seeing their own potential of what they can accomplish because somebody else believed in them. And when I, of course, we talk to the young people before they, you know, really get into our internship to try to learn more about them and to see the difference between when they first arrived at the internship and when they're leaving and the kinds of things that they're saying. Um, Because we engage them in all the events that we do. So we do a Reclaiming Black Joy event during the summer at the parks and they come and they volunteer And one of the things that they consistently said is that when I'm giving someone something, another Black person, and I'm around folks who are having fun and just enjoying themselves, and I could add to their joy, that brings me joy, right? And so to hear them say that was just, it just blessed me so much um, because they now felt a connection to community in ways they hadn't before. They were now getting access to our elders and learning that wisdom from our elders when they hadn't before. So they're starting to see themselves as part of a community rather than an individual that nobody cares about. And so they're continuing to stay involved and to check in on us and call us and how's it going and drop by. You know, that is what we, what that is what they need. And that is what we need as a community. We need to know how to fight each other. We need to know that when I find you, that is that that's home for me, that you receive me, right? Because it wasn't, it's not always the case in Portland where other black people who move here feel accepted. Um, and that was that was another thing I tried to learn how to do, trying to understand why why s- some folks act the way that they do you know, and see me as a threat rather than as a part of your community, right? And so when, and that's part of why I got my doctorate degree, really trying to understand what is it at the root of what is happening here and how can I contribute to the healing of it, right? And so just learning the research about what was done already, why do kids get involved in gang violence? And it's like this unresolved grief. And and it's also systemic in the schools where we're taught to feel badly about ourselves. I mean, I was told, well, I w- my teachers tried to convince me I was not college material. So um, when it ta- came time to take the SAT, I was just told to show up in a room. I was not told anything about preparation. And so it felt like there was a sabotage because they didn't feel like I was college material anyway. But I ended up scoring high enough to be able to get a full ride, you know, at HBCU, which was the best thing for me. It totally changed my life. And um, and so I just want to be able to provide these opportunities for youth because it was the Black teachers at FAMU that changed my life because they saw me. And so that is what I want to do for Black youth. I want to see them. I want to let them know that they matter and that I believe in them and that they can overcome this systemic 
undermining, they can overcome that and be able to not only help themselves, but help other people. So we have a phrase that's called, in my power, I empower. And that's really at the root of everything I am more is all about. Once I am grounded in who I am, and I love myself and feel good about myself, then naturally, I want to help other people. I want to show other people how to do that. And that's how we keep it going. And that's how we build community. So when I first spoke to Fartland, I didn't feel like I fit in here. In some ways, I didn't care that I fit in because I never fit in anywhere. But at the same time, I also wanted to build friendships. And it was hard for me to make friends here um, because of my role at the Oregonian. You know, I was bringing in some cachet, right? And so, but I also wanted to write about Black people. And um, I, I believe that most people were unaccustomed to Black people speaking truth about Black people. And, uh, and I didn't care because, you know, I, I, I came from, uh, HBCU, like, and they taught me to just speak truth and bet on myself, which is what I did. And so my attitude or my way of working through the world was very different. I noticed from people who are, are from Portland and, um, because I wasn't related to the right families or, uh, I wasn't born here. I didn't grow up here. Uh, it, it felt like I was ostracized in a lot of ways. Um, like I, I wasn't, uh, I was an outsider and it felt like an outsider. And so I didn't know, uh, how some people would intentionally undermine me. I wasn't expecting that because I'm, you know, coming from FAMU and it was like black folk, black folk community, all this, right. And then to come in an environment where, um, you were looked at suspiciously because you weren't born here, right? So I, um, in some ways, it gave me a freedom to write about what I wanted to write about um, because I called people out, you know, on the, I spoke truth to power. And so there was one uh, occasion where there was these two people in the NAACP who were fighting and suing each other. One was suing each other for a million dollars. The other was counter-suing. And it was just like, this is so ridiculous. And so what I did is I wrote a ridiculous column. I wrote a column um, and it sounded like it was from Jesse Jackson. And it was all in rhyme because, you know, he used to rhyme a lot. <laughs> I was like, let me have some fun with this. So I pretended I was, I was reprinting a letter from Jesse Jackson directed to these two people in the NAACP who were fighting each other. It was, for me, it was just, I was cracking up the whole time. People actually thought that was original letter. They actually thought it was a letter, right? And so, uh, you know, and I, so I wrote columns where I just, you know, I had to call people out and just, and I felt like this was my integrity. I, I, I'm going to just speak truth, right? And so I got ostracized by folks, you know, and uh, I also encountered people who intentionally undermined me, you know, I didn't understand that. And then, um, so I just had to learn to be true to myself. And, uh, and so I started getting asked, um, 
to speak because I used to be incredibly shy and I would not get up in front of people. And so one of the things that I, I did after leaving FAMU was like, what, is, what am I most afraid of? That's what I'm going to do. And so I had to get past my fear of rejection from people and just start, you know, showing up and being bold about it. And, um, and that's, that's just how, how I just rolled. And some people, you know, uh, treat me, uh, they, you know, that, that I'm, they treat me at its, you know, at this, the celebrity level. Me, I don't, I don't get off on that. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I, I feel like I'm blessed with the amount of skills that God has given me that I've worked really hard to hone and develop. Um, but it's not something I, I am, um, lording over people. A creative revolutionist is a title that I came up with because when people would say, well, what do you do? I'd have to think about it for a minute because where do I start and where do I begin? So I've always been creative. And when I left the Oregonian or left the journalism industry, I focused on my artistry. I wanted to be able to paint. Uh, I wanted to be able to make clothes, to make jewelry. Uh, these are the things that just gave me life. And so I was doing all of this stuff. And so when people would ask me, well, what do you do? And it was like, okay, where do I start? <laughs> so I had to come up with a title. A creative revolutionist. That's who I am. I'm all about change for the greater good. Uh, and I'm going to use creativity to do it, whether it's art or poetry or, you know, watercolors or anything like that. It's just like, if I pour myself into it, I'm going to create something that will make other people happy. I'm just trying to live my life in a way that other people might find inspiring, be able to see themselves in my story and actually do things that they want to do, that they, that speaks to them, what their heart is telling them to do. Um, I've never really had permission, so I didn't ask for permission. So I've had, that is really what kind of what saved me in Portland because there's, you know, there's, there could be some jealousy. There's, there's some undermining of black folks against other black folks. There's all of that. Right. And I just had to, you know, um, I just had to be true to myself. One, one particular example, uh, when I moved here, um, you know, I just gotten divorced and then I met somebody and I got married for the second time and he was abusive. And so I didn't know anything about that, <laughs> uh, what the signs were or anything like that. And so I was talking to a young uh, woman. I was getting an award at this, this event and I was talking to a couple uh, black ladies at the table and I was like, I was describing a little bit about my experience and I said, I'm so confused. I don't know why people behave this way, right? Because I grew up in the church, you know, and people, you know, thinking everybody was good and all this kind. And I just did not understand uh, why I was experiencing this. And so one of the older women said, that is your own private family business. Don't talk about that. 
you know, we're not trying to hear all that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I was gonna. I was having a nervous breakdown, you know, behind some of that. And so, what I decided, and this is this is this is how I've, this is how I've really found my way in Portland. I decided to do the opposite of what people wanted me to do. They wanted me to shut up. So what I did, I wrote a play about it, and performed it at IFCC. I wrote. Um, poetry. I I published my book of poetry about uh, domestic violence, and I did an album. I recorded an album. <laughs> I was just not interested in playing small, and that's part of you know what I learned at Florida A&M. I'm not playing small because you are not able to accept or receive my message. I'm still going to bring it right, and as a matter of fact, I'm be I'm I'm emboldened to bring it because you don't want to hear it. <laughs> and so that's how I think I started to 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 get known. It's just like everything you're telling me to do, I'm going to do the opposite. And I ended up founding the city's first uh, domestic violence resource center for African and African-American women because nobody really wanted to talk about it. But Black women experience domestic violence like five times more than than the average woman of another uh, racial category, because we don't want to we don't want to s- deliver our men to the police, you know. So we just take it, we own it, and and we we're miserable, right? And so that whole conversation happened because this woman said, "Shut up," and I said, "Uh, no." <laughs> Not only am I not going to shut up, I'm gonna I'm gonna be loud and proud and put it out there in ways that people can receive it, right? And so I guess that's what I I found that had to be the way that I approached Portland, um, because if I had waited on approval, if I had waited for permission, uh, or for them to say, okay, now it's your turn, I would have never gotten a turn. And growing up with, you know, in a family with uh, eight siblings, it's the same kind of thing. If you wait your turn, you'll never have a turn. You have to learn how to step into your own power, right? And say what you got to say and do what you got to do. And that has been, um, I think, the way that I've been able to manage in Portland. Because I, um, I feel because of my father, a real connection to making the community a better place. That's one. And even though he died when I was 11, my mother kept his newspaper articles, his writings, his, he was an artist, so he loved to draw. He loved to write poetry. You know, he did all the, and he was a great thinker. Um, He wrote a lot about, you know, his commitment to community. And so these are the things that sustain me in an environment where I'm not always welcome, where I'm not always appreciated. I go back to whose child am I? You know, and Leroy Ward Mitchell, I his I am his daughter and I am going to follow in his footsteps uh, for just doing what I can to make the world a better place. And, and that's my mission in Portland. It hasn't always been kind. But I, I, um, I appreciate the, the, the space that I've had here to do the kind of work that I have done and that I'm doing now. 
um, because it makes a difference. And if I had a rosy childhood, maybe I would be a different person. Maybe I wouldn't feel so obligated uh, to, to, you know, help the youth that I see myself in. Um, so it's, it's, it's all kind of worked out the way it's supposed to have been. And I actually appreciate Portland a lot more than I did when I first came. Um, and I, there's so much more that, that is, that can happen out of here because of the community that we are. Right. And so having this spreading black joy campaign when I go into bigger cities and I'm talking about it, they're like, they're eating it up, right? They're understanding the importance of, of needing and wanting and desiring black joy. And to, to have this start here in Portland with the, the nod film. Um, so this happened during the pandemic. Actually this whole spreading black joy thing happened during the pandemic. Once again, it's, listening to myself, understanding when I'm being guided to do something. And so I was depressed. I've, I've struggled with depression my entire life because of the way I grew up with a lot of trauma and that kind of thing. And I was standing on MLK waiting to go into the hardware store because they were only letting like five people in at a time. And I'm the only black person there in this line. And there's an older black gentleman who's walking toward me. And when he got close to my periphery, uh, we exchanged the black nod. It was a subtle thing. He kept walking. I, to this day, don't know who he is. But what I noticed was that my entire mood changed because I was feeling so depressed and isolated and lonely, right? And he changed that for me just by acknowledging me. And I'm an acronym queen, so the nod is like noticing our dignity. He noticed my dignity, right? And so from there, I got on a, fr on a, on a phone call with a friend of mine who is a filmmaker. I said, we got to do a film about the Black Nod because this totally changed my whole life. And if it could do this for me, it could do this for other black people. So why don't we do a thing about the nod to help us recognize each other, especially during the time that we're going in where it's so isolating. We need the acknowledgement that we matter, right? And so that became the spreading the black joy virus, right? And so now it's become uh, something I'm able to talk about at these different conferences uh, I'm speaking about it at this international conference uh, in November and then another one uh, in in October this month. So I, I, I'm just grateful about how these things like this have unfolded in my life and how I'm listening. I'm listening to guidance. Um, so it's like, I don't really take credit for it, except the fact that I know how to listen. And for me, that's part of my whole spiritual journey of like understanding um, my own worthiness, understanding that that I feel like I, I am being guided in, in different ways and just to accept that. 
and just to, 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 you know, to walk in that. And it just, and so many doors have opened up because I'm listening and I'm saying yes. When it's all said and done, I would love for people, when they think about who I am, that I, I did my best to try to make the world a better place, to try to help Black youth understand their own potential. And through the attempted healing of my community, that I heal myself. And so it's a complete joy. Uh, and that I am someone I want to be remembered that they, that they valued joy. They valued blackness. They valued creativity. They valued self-love and community. And so if people can say that about me, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, I want to be like my dad. Um, I I want to be remembered for what I left behind rather than who I was, you know, that I, I left behind for someone else to pick up that baton and spread joy even more. Or even some of the youth that I've worked with to then step into their roles as leaders of the black community from a very healed perspective. That's, that brings me the most joy ever. Um, after my dad died, my mother eventually moved us to Newburgh. Um, and so I went to PCC to get enough credits to graduate early. And so on my way, we took the bus. It took a couple hours to get to um, Portland and my older sister graduated when she was 16, my next older sister when she was 17. And I was determined I was gonna get out of Newburgh as quickly as possible. And so um, I was walking to to get there. And um, so I was by Unthink Park where SEI now is, but SEI wasn't there at the time. And uh, a young man had called me over. Now, again, I was shy, so, and and I didn't get noticed, you know, um, when I was growing up. And so he was a basketball player full of this confidence, right? So he called me over and I, and, and then we're talking for a minute and then he, he started running. And I was like, okay, this is weird. We're in the middle of a conversation and I turned back and there were headlines. And so she had stolen a car where the steering wasn't working. And um, I believe it was the closest thing I've ever gotten to for a near-death experience because they thought I was dead. They covered me up with a blanket. And um, I remember when, my, when, my, uh, when I came back into my body and I opened my eyes and people gasped because they thought I was dead. I was in the hospital for three months. I learned to learn how to walk again. The doctor, when I first came in, said, let's cut her leg off because there's way too much damage. Because um, it was broken completely in half. I lost a lot of skin. 
Um, I, uh, I had some bones crushed at my ankle and, uh, cause I had uh, cuts on my eye and my forehead and it was just, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> um, and so, but there, a lot of people were praying for me and I ended up, uh, still graduating at 17. Um, and, uh, you know, multiple surgeries and that kind of thing. And so, and then two years ago, I was riding my bike and, uh, I'm a careful bike rider because <laughs> I ride on the sidewalk. Right. And so I had stopped because I had the light to, to keep going, but there was a, there was also a light where they were coming out. Right. And so when I got to the, the sidewalk, not the sidewalk, but the crosswalk, I saw that the car had stopped in front of the line. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, he sees me. As soon as I got out in front of him, he accelerated because he was looking to the left so he could turn right because they had the light. Right. And so, it, you know, so I was again in the hospital, uh, and, uh, and the doctors were like, we're not sure whether you're going to heal because you, it's the same leg you got hit. Uh, I broke my ankle on my left. Uh, yeah. And, and, bro and broke my foot on my right, which is the one that received the most damage as a child. Um, in some ways I'm grateful, um, because of the, f the thing that happened when I was 15, because it made me more insular and I didn't wear the you know, the short shorts and the, the you know, the, because when the girls, they're coming to college, they're just like out there. Right. And I was, I, there was too much shame. Uh, and I was still having to wear bandages and stuff. So I was, I was not out there. Right. And so, um, uh, it taught me a lot about my own inner strength and my ability to heal and accept healing um, as an, as an option. And so I just, um, kept believing that, uh, things would be okay. And that I would walk again. Cause the doctor was like, you're going to walk with a limp. I was like, no, I'm not, <laughs> you know, and just owning my truth. Right. Which is what I teach these young people. You own your truth. Don't, don't just depend on what other people tell you about who you are and what you're capable of. If I had done that, I, I, I'd be walking with with a limp, I'd be, you know, I, yeah. So, uh, those two experiences really, you know, reminded me of my own inner strength and how important it is not to care so much about what you look like, but like who you are, what's inside of you, what, what, what are you, what are your truths, you know? And so those, that is what those experiences is, have taught me is like, I have to stand on my beliefs and my values and, and not just, you know, how I look, you know, that is, has never been a priority for me. I feel in a lot of ways I'm, I've been directed, I've been guided and, uh, and I, you know, and I, I appreciate that. I understand. I understand that. I believe in that. I, I, I sometimes, you know, if I'm listening, I'll hear that still small voice, do this, don't do that, you know, trust this, don't trust that. And, um, really teaching young people how to understand their own guidance, you know? So yeah, it's been a journey.
Thanks for tuning in to Oregon Hidden Legacy. For more information about this podcast, go to OregonHiddenLegacy.org.